Welcome to the mine. We are glad you are here. It's our last one of the semester, so I'm really glad you're here. So, uh, although I know I'll be seeing you all around the church campus, so, hey, a couple of, uh, of thanks are in order tonight from me. Uh, you know, the mine is, is really taken off and it's due to a lot of hard work on a lot of people's parts. And I just want to thank uh, five that I know of, and I hope I'm not leaving anybody out. Uh, but I want to thank uh, Mike Haddich for doing all the work on our website, for Ron being here every week and taping me. That's just so huge because a lot of you, you know, you can't make it every week, but you listen to it online. Uh, for Lynn out there checking people in every week, and for Joan and Sue and all the work that they've done with refreshments this semester. I just want to give them all a big hand. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just a couple other things. Because I won't, in a sense, have, we won't be having the mind through the summer, I thought I would take just a minute tonight before we get into our study and then answering your questions, just to mention that if you're looking for a Bible study, that I teach, I would love to have you in one of my Bible studies during the summer uh, on Sundays. Uh, I will be teaching two small churches throughout the summer. One is at 8.30, so if you wanted to come to that and then go to the 10 o'clock service. The other one is at 11.30, so if you want to go to the 10 o'clock service and then stay. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about them if you're interested. Right now at 8.30, uh, here in this room, uh, I am doing a series called The Power of Relationships, How to Find Meaningful Relationships in Your Life, How to Avoid Unhealthy Relationships, How to Find Healthy, Safe Relationships, and just like with the mind, even though I've already started that series, we've got a lot of great stuff yet to cover because that series runs through June, the rest of May and through June. So if you'd like to be a part of that group, please come Sunday morning at 8.30. You are welcome to come. Then at 8.30, beginning on Sunday, July the 1st, I'm going to be starting a new series in that hour called How to Handle Life's Disappointments. That will go through the whole month of July and August. We're going to be using the book of Ruth from the Old Testament as the foundation for that study. How to Handle Life's Disappointments. And again, that's at 8.30, beginning July 1st. Then, at 11.30, right now, in this room on Sundays, I'm doing a series called The Ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, you're more than welcome to come, even though that series has already started. Again, we've got lots of cool stuff to cover in that. And that series will run through Sunday, June the 3rd. Then, Sunday, June the 10th, I will be starting a new series at 11.30 called Overcoming Anxiety and Stress God's Way. I have a feeling that's going to be packed out in here at 11.30, <laughs> because I have already just, we haven't even really advertised that yet, and the few people that have heard about that are like, oh my goodness. So, uh, it's, I think it's going to be good. We're going to be talking a, a lot about uh, taking off on what Pastor Lynn talked about Sunday, about the busy epidemic in our culture, and how to overcome anxiety and stress God's way. Again, that begins June the 10th and will run through uh, about the middle of August. Then, something else I want to share with you guys tonight. Um, 
On Thursday, July the 5th, the day after the 4th of July, I'm speaking in Camber for Pastor Ron. And I've already cleared this with him. Even if you don't normally go to Camber, you are more than welcome to come uh, that night. I'm going to be doing a special message on eating disorders. If you know of somebody who suffers from eating disorders or who has an eating disorder or you would like more information about it because you've got a friend or a family member who has some kind of eating disorder, I would recommend you come that night. We're going to be talking about hope, help, and healing for those who suffer from eating disorders. All right? Uh, That's Thursday, July the 5th. Then, Tuesday, August the 21st is when we start the mind back up. All right, so mark that date on your calendar, Tuesday, August the 21st. Uh, We'll be starting a series in the book of Romans that night, uh, and that will cover the entire fall semester. And for you gals in here, uh, I teach a women's Bible study on Wednesday mornings, and we'll be again doing that this year. If if your schedule allows you to come here on the church campus on Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock from like 9 to 10... Uh, this fall, beginning on Wednesday, August the 22nd, I'll be doing a Bible study on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which is going to be a great series as well. So I give you all that information and dates for what it's worth. One other reminder, don't forget uh, that Jeff Gokey, our leader of our 5th and 6th grade ministry, is having a fundraiser this weekend here at the church to help send kids to camp. It is a pancake breakfast, and you get your car washed for $10. If you would like to purchase tickets for that, Travis, where do they go to get tickets for that? Okay. All right. So hit up the parents of fifth and sixth graders. All right. Yes. No, it's usually not recorded. Yeah. Yeah. Although we might work on that. We might work on that. Yes. Yes. sending out email messages on some of the other classes that are coming up just as a reminder. So we'll try to get that information out to you in those two ways. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Brian's class on Mormonism that many of you have heard about or are attending on Sunday evening uh, has been such a hit that I think we're going to redo that again in the fall, correct? Uh, well, end of June. End of June. Okay, so if you missed it this time, you don't want to miss it the next time, all right? You want to take that class. What one? The Mormonism? Talk to Pastor George about that. He would be the one to talk to about that. Yeah. 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 Poor Ron. We need to clone Ron and have him all over the place taping things. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's open up with a word of prayer tonight and then we'll get into finishing the book of Hebrews and answering some of your questions tonight. It's a little warm in here. Oh, that's not good. You don't. Okay. All right. I apologize, guys. Okay. And I apologize. I did not know until I came to work today that they were going to blow the bathrooms up over here in the building today. So, uh, you know, I apologize. Mason. Um, all right. Let's open up with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get into our study tonight. 
Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity that we've had this past semester to study your word and Lord, just to be together, to make new friends and uh, just to build the friends that we already have. We thank you, Lord, for this group and just pray you would bless them, especially, Lord, this summer as we're apart. Uh, Lord, just go with them this summer. Give them a safe summer, a good summer spiritually. Uh, we just pray, Father, that uh, they would continue just to dig into your word and to study it and, uh, Lord, to grow in their understanding of you through your word. God, just uh, use tonight once again to bring honor and glory to Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's finish the book of Hebrews, all right? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 is where we want to pick it up tonight. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. In fact, here's what I'd like to do tonight is just read that passage of Scripture that we have left and then just make a few comments on it. Remember that the context of all that he's talking about is how we can persevere and keep on moving forward in spite of all the difficulties and things that we're facing in life. And these folks were facing a lot of trials and tribulations and persecution and suffering and all of that, and they were ready to give up. And so he really writes to them to encourage them to keep on keeping on. And so remember that. That's the, the backdrop of everything that he says. So in verse 17 of chapter 13, he says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls and will give an account for their work. Let them do this with joy and not with complaints, for this would be of no advantage for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to conduct ourselves rightly in every respect. I especially ask you to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. Now may the God of peace, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, equip you with every good thing to do his will, working in us what is pleasing before him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, bear with my message of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon, he will be with me when I see you. Greetings to all your leaders and to all the saints. Those from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Now, we want to start out in verse 17. And let me just define a couple of things here. Let's say, first of all, what verse 17 is not saying. It's not saying that members of a local church should just do whatever their leaders want them to do. That's not what it's saying. So if a leader gets up in a church and says, here's some Kool-Aid, drink it, we don't do that. Okay? All right? That, that tragically happens, as we know from the story of Jim Jones, but that's not what this verse is saying. However, what this verse is saying is this, that God wants His people, both the leadership and the flock, to be unified, moving in a common direction. He does not want the leadership of the church to have to focus on putting out all these fires all the time because the sheep can't get along with each other and they're causing trouble and they can't devote themselves to what they really need to devote themselves to. That's why the word obey here just simply means able to be persuaded. It just means somebody who has a teachable spirit. You, you want sheep who are willing to learn, who are willing to grow. That's what the word obey means. Simply, they're able to, to, to grow and, and change if need be. And that's what the word submit means. It just means able to yield. 
that there are times where, you know, they hear something and they go, you know what? I have a difference of opinion about that, but as you being my leader, I'm, I'm going to yield to you. Why? Because notice he goes on to say, because it is the pastor, especially the lead pastor, but the pastors who will give an account for their work of the church. In other words, you as an individual church member or attender will give an account of your Christian life, but you won't have to stand before God and give an account for this church. That's going to be the pastor's responsibility. That's not a responsibility that most people want, okay? So, you know, we say, yeah, there's maybe extra privileges, but there's also extra responsibility as well. That's why he goes on to say then in verse 17 to the church congregation, let your leaders give this account one day with joy and not by complaining, for this would be no advantage for you. In other words... If a pastor has to stand before the Lord and go, this group over here, I I could have gotten so much more accomplished, but I had to always deal with, with what they were doing negatively in the church. They were a burden, not a blessing to the body of Christ. That's not advantageous. That's not advantageous down here. That's not advantageous up there. Because we're all going to have to stand and give an account. We're not going to be judged for our sin, but we are going to have to give an account of the life we lived for Christ in the body while here on earth. So there needs to be that idea that, you know, to be good followers and to follow our leaders that God has placed before us. One of the reasons why, too, is notice in verse 17, the phrase, they keep watch over your souls. This word in the, or these words, keep watch in the original language, literally mean to lose sleep over. And it reminds us of the heavy burden of responsibility that church leaders should have. And I always tell people, you know, you would have no trouble following somebody if you knew they truly had your best interest at heart. And if, 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 if your pastor is losing sleep because they're concerned about your spiritual welfare and they want to see you grow and they want to see this church grow and they want to see Jesus Christ honored and glorified, you're going to be more likely to follow that kind of a leader. This in no way gives leaders the right to force people to, you know, to be a dictator. The Bible specifically says church leaders are not to be dictators. They are not to lord it over God's people in any way. So if you've come out of a church where the pastor or pastoral leadership uh, was this sort of dictatorship, that is totally unbiblical. And if they use this verse as a way to try to, you know, make everybody fall in line, that's not what this verse is teaching. All right? This verse is just simply saying, Follow your leaders as they follow Christ. And don't be troublemakers. Okay? Don't cause trouble. Because then that takes them away from doing what they should be focused on doing and have to deal with the trouble. And a lot of times that's where pastors, they're always putting out fires instead of really being able to focus on what they need to focus on. Alright, then, let's go on. Verse 18. Here's an encouragement. You ever been... Uh, tempted or or you struggle with asking other Christians to pray for you, don't do that. And be reminded of this verse. The next time you, maybe Satan or somebody else, or maybe even your flesh is... Don't don't ask somebody to pray for you. Because notice here, the writer of Hebrews says, pray for us. Pray for... He was not above asking people to pray for him. You and I need people to pray for us. 
We, that, that's one of the greatest ministries that we can ever have is to pray for one another. So the next time, you know, you, you, you get that prompting really from the Spirit and you know that you should at least call up a few Christian friends or the next time you see them or something, ask them to pray for you, you do that. Don't be ashamed to ask people to pray for you. Don't let the enemy tell you that's a sign of weakness and all that. Don't bother them or whatever. I always consider it one of the greatest privileges I have as a Christian to bring other people before the throne of God in prayer. He says, pray for us. And notice why. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to conduct ourselves rightly in every respect. I especially ask you to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. The reason he wants them to pray is because the writer of Hebrews wants to get together with these people that he's writing to. And he wants to get together face to face. Because as much as letters and emails and cards and all of that can be an encouragement, there's nothing like that face to face stuff. There's a synergy and there's an energy that goes on when when we're face-to-face with people that you can't get from just the written Word. In fact, keep your finger there in Hebrews. And let me show you what the Apostle Paul said about that back in the book of Romans. If you go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. Paul says the same thing here. He's saying, here's why I want to come and be with you face to face in the flesh. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. In other words, Paul is saying here to the Romans, I know God has equipped me with at least a spiritual gift. And so when I come into your presence, I want God to use that gift that he's given me to strengthen you. Spiritually, notice also, it's not a one-sided thing though, verse 12. That is, that we may be mutually comforted by one another's faith, both yours and mine. You see, that's what takes place in a healthy relationship. It's not one-sided. That's what I, I tell you folks every week, and I mean it. You all, coming on Tuesday night to study the Word of God, encourage me more than I ever feel I encourage you. You just don't realize the encouragement you are to me knowing that you're going to take your Tuesday evening to come here to study the Word of God. That is just a tremendous encouragement to me. And, and so, don't forget, it works both ways, and that's the way it should work. And that's why Paul, here in the book of Romans, says, I want to get together with you. Because there's something about when we get together physically that there's that dynamic there. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying then back in Hebrews chapter 13. Alright, if you go back there. Then notice in verse 20, now may the God of peace, the God of peace, God is the source of peace. Don't forget that. The world today is looking for peace. Christians are even looking for peace because they may be struggling with things like anxiety and stress and depression. In fact, just a, a little thing too, too, anxiety and depression are two sides of the same coin. That's why a lot of people who struggle with anxiety also struggle with depression. Those who struggle with depression struggle with it. It's really the same, same thing. And so we've got a world filled with people like that. They're looking for peace. Well, 
The writer of Hebrews reminds us that God is a God of peace. And He wants to give you that peace tonight. And maybe you've come here and you don't have that peace tonight. That's okay. But know that the God that we serve and that we believe in is the source of that peace. And all you have to do is look to Him and trust Him and believe in Him. And He wants to give you that gift of peace in your life. In fact, again, keep your finger there in Hebrews. We're going to come back, but go over to the Gospel of John. You know it's the last night because I'm having you really do your exercises, your Bible exercises. To John chapter 16, I love this verse. John chapter 16, the very last verse of the chapter, verse 33. If you don't have this verse memorized or underlined or whatever, man, it's a good verse to have happen there. John 16, verse 33. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world. I love that. Jesus says, in me you have peace. Yeah, in the world, you're going to have a lot of trouble. In the world, you're going to have suffering. In the world, like the readers of Hebrews, they were going through a terrible time in their life. But they could still have peace because peace is a gift of the Spirit of God to those who are trusting in Christ. It's a supernatural gift. And it's, it's not dependent upon our circumstances because our peace is in Christ and in our relationship with Him. And that cannot change. Though the circumstances around us can change, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8, and therefore we can always find peace in Him. Maybe not in our circumstances. Our circumstances may stink, but we can find peace in Christ. And He wants to give you that peace. If you don't have that peace tonight, ask Him for it. It's a gift that He wants to give you. Then if you go back to Hebrews... Chapter 13, here's another encouragement. Notice he says, This God of peace brought back from the dead the great shepherd of our sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty extreme. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. You guys are really down right now. And and you're about ready to throw in the towel and give up. You've got to understand something. You and I serve a God that can bring back the dead. And if He can bring back the dead, He can bring back anybody out of anything as long as they just surrender their life to Him. He can bring you back. He has brought back, I know, I mean, in my own ministry, I've seen Him bring back people from the brink of death. Not just physical, but I'm talking about even emotional. They were ready to end their life and He brought them back from the brink. I've seen him bring back people uh, out of addiction that, I mean, it it had a hold on them and there was no way they were ever going to get. He brought them back. I've seen marriages that I'm telling you, it's just a miracle of God that that marriage is still together today. But it is and it's stronger than ever because God brought that marriage back from the brink. God is in the business of bringing things back. And you may be in a situation right now where you're like the, the people who are reading this book. You're, you're down and you're out. You need to be reminded that God is an expert at bringing people back. He's brought me back in my life many times and He can bring you back as well. Just 
open up to him and let him do his work. And here's how he does it. Verse 21, the very first word, he equips you. Now, when we read that word in the English, we're thinking about he supplies us with all the resources we need. It's sort of like you think of, you might get that picture of the spiritual warfare and all the armor. That's not what this word means at all. The word equip here means to put something into its appropriate condition so it will function well. And it's really a medical term. It's, it's a term that talks about healing, or it was also a Greek word used for mending nets that had holes in them, and they needed repair and restoration in order to be put back into service and be used to catch fish. So here's what God is saying. He's saying that I don't care who you are and what you're involved with and how deep you're into it and how far away you are. I am a God who can bring you back because here's what I'm an expert in. I am a God who is an expert in equipping people. I am a God who's an expert in healing people who have been damaged, who have been hurt. And these folks who are reading this right now, they have been hurt. They have been persecuted. They have went through tremendous suffering. And they're probably thinking, I'm never going to be able to just either continue. and, And if I can continue... God's never going to be able to use me again. I'm never going to be at a level where... But notice, He will equip you with every good thing to do His will. He's not just going to get you back in the game again. He's going to help you to be effective again. I go back to my own personal testimony that I shared about the fact that there was a time in my life just a couple years ago where I wasn't going to, get in the, I wasn't going to be in the ministry anymore. And, and you see what God can do when we are open to that. That's what this word means, equip. So when you read that, get that sense that he's a healer. He's a healer. He wants to come into your life and repair and restore you from the damage that has been inflicted upon you. That's what God does. And he's an expert in it. Nobody better than God who can do that for us. And then he goes on to say, I love this. Bear, verse 22, with my message of exhortation. The word exhortation there is the word parakaleo, the same word that's used about the Holy Spirit. That He is one who literally comes alongside to help with whatever we need help with. And that's exactly why the writer of Hebrews wrote this book. He wanted to just help them with whatever the Hebrews needed help with. Whatever kind of encouragement He could give to them, He gives to them. He must have been a preacher though. Because you notice what he says in verse 22, I've written to you briefly. It's 13 chapters. That's a brief letter? 13 chapters? That's like a preacher. Yeah, I just spoke for a little while, just an hour and 15 minutes. That's, that's brief, right? Maybe from your perspective it's brief, but not from mine. I, I love that. I've written to you briefly. I don't know about that. I, I'd have to question that one. And then I just want to end with this. And if there are any comments or questions before I start answering these questions tonight. He ends really with the most important thing again, and that's reminder of God's grace. He just says, oh, and by the way, I, I would be remiss if I ended this letter without reminding you, God's grace be with you all. Because we have learned throughout our study of the book of Hebrews just how huge grace is. Grace empowers us to live the life that God intended for us to live. God's grace empowers us to be all that God created us to be. 
I've shared this illustration before, but I haven't for a while, so I'm going to share it again. God created the African impala, this magnificent creature, to jump to a height of like 10 feet and cover a distance of 30 feet when it leaps. That's pretty far. But an African impala can be kept in an enclosure in any zoo by a three-foot wall. And the reason is because an African impala will never jump where it cannot see where its feet will fall. So it is kept in that enclosure because of that. That's the way we are many times throughout our life. God says, I want to set you free. But you or somebody else throughout your life has constructed these barriers and these walls around you. And even though you could escape, you, through Christ, have all that you need to be able to live without those barriers in your life. You imprison yourself in those barriers. And you won't go outside of them. Not because you can't, but because you won't. Because my Bible tells me in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. And God doesn't want those barriers around my life. He wants me to be free in Him to be all that He created me to be. And that comes by plugging into the grace of God. By going to the throne of grace and asking for help. And by, by allowing His grace to strip away all the fear and stuff that erects those barriers and, and things around us that, that keep us from truly experiencing life the way God intended for us to experience it as one of His children. Grace be with you all. Guys, I have enjoyed sharing the book of Hebrews with you. Uh, comments or questions before we move on to the questions you asked the last couple of weeks? I know, you really want to get to these questions, don't you? Alright then, we will close out the book of Hebrews. Now, let me say this. You guys asked so many questions that I'm going to try to get to as many as I can tonight. The ones that I do not get to tonight, I am going to put on the website in the coming weeks. And I apologize, I have been very uh, neglectful of putting my thoughts for the week, the last couple of weeks, up. So beginning this next week, throughout the summer, while we're not together, if you get on there once a week, you will see those change, because I will put some hopefully encouraging words for you every week on the MIND website from me, all right? But the next couple of weeks, I'm also going to uh, be answering whatever questions I were, was not able to get to tonight. All right, let's just dive into it. This question actually comes from our discussion from last week. Pastor Jeff, tonight you talked about how children who are raised in a Christian home have sometimes a harder time accepting Christ as their Savior because they take it all for granted. Do you have advice for young parents who were themselves raised in a Christian home for how to biblically raise their children in the truth in a way that will help them not take it for granted? Um, a lot I could say about that, but the one thing I will focus on tonight for our discussion is simply this. Romans 14, verse 5 would be the verse I would direct you to. And here's what that verse says. Let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind. In other words, the sooner you can get your children to develop their own convictions, 
the better. That's the best thing. You see, the problem comes when children are living off of their parents' convictions. And then they come. That's why a lot of times, except in a church like this that has such a dynamic ministry like Camber, that many times can bridge that gap. After they get out of high school and they're sort of on their own and they're off to college, a lot of times they don't want to have anything to do with church. Because the whole time that they were growing up in that home, they went to church, but they went to church because they were made to go to church. And I understand there's that point of a, 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 to a point, but there's got to come that point where they buy into it themselves or it's not doing them any good anyway. So all I say is the sooner you as a parent can allow your children to develop their own convictions about their belief in God and what the Bible teaches, the better because then they own it. It's there. They're not living off of your convictions. They're living off of their own. They truly believe that. That was a joy for us as parents whenever our son and daughter, I mean, the reason they're living for Christ is because they want to, not because their dad's a pastor and, you know, their mom's been this wonderful Christian all her life. They're not doing it for that reason. They're doing it because they have bought into it. This is what they believe. And they even have some different convictions about things and what we do. But they're their own convictions and they live by them. And it's just so good to see. That's the best advice I can give you because where the disconnect comes, like I said, is when they're living off of somebody else's convictions. That's only going to last for a while. That's like any of us. You know, if, you, if, if you're doing things in your life because Pastor Lynn said it and you don't really believe it, that, that ain't going to wash out very long. You have to buy into it. That's why we encourage people here, whatever we say as pastors, teachers, whatever, you study the Word of God, you come to your own convictions and conclusions because you can't live off of our convictions. We have our own convictions about these things and that's why we order our life that way, but we can't expect you to live off of our convictions. You've got to develop your own convictions about that. Best advice I can give. All right, let's move on. What translation of the Bible do you teach from and why? I use what is called the Net Bible. Uh, the reason it is called the Net Bible, it's really short for Internet Bible. It is the first Bible that is ever available to everyone around the world over the Internet. There are Christians all over the world who have access to this book. If they have a computer, they don't even need the Bible, they have access to the complete Genesis through Revelation on the web all, in all different languages all over the world. That's what it's a, the only place you can get this Bible is at Bible.org. All right? You can't get it in a Christian bookstore. All right? That website is on our website. So you can link off of our website if you'd like one of these. Now, why do I use it? Um, I like the NIV. I think the NIV is a great translation. I like the New American Standard. I like the New King James. All right? The reason I chose this one is this is sort of between the NIV and the New American Standard. And I use it both for its readability, which I think is important, like the NIV, but also for its accuracy. And I just personally think it's just a little bit more accurate in the translation. For instance, uh, I'll just give you an example. Like in the older translations, when Jesus said, uh, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, technically, Jesus didn't just mean that, that he wanted his disciples to go out and reach physical men. He meant people. Well, then this translation says, Jesus said, uh, I'm going to make you fishers of people. 
men and women. All right. So just a little bit, you know, because that's what we know it means. But this sort of gives you that accuracy. All right. And there's other reasons why uh, there's different. There's two different t- types. There's what's called the reader's edition, which is much smaller and thinner. There is the study version, which I also have, which is about twice this thick, which you need muscles to carry around. But some of you have an NIV study Bible or whatever, Ryrie study Bible, MacArthur study Bible. It would be about the same size as that. It has 60,000 notes in it. And they are great if you really want to study the Bible. I mean, they're just very, very helpful. All right? So, you know, a lot of good translations out there. That's just the one that, that I chose. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, here was a great question that I'm going to put on the web because uh, I did not get a chance to run it all out. Places in Bible times and their modern equivalents. In other words, there's a lot of places geographically that are mentioned in the Old and New Testament that have a modern equivalent, but sometimes it's hard to figure out what is that modern equivalent. Like we all know that Babylon in the Bible is really modern day Iraq. That's part of the Iraqi empire, has been for years and years and years. So it will help us, if you know what those equivalents are, to put the sort of the Bible and even prophecy in some modern context, if you will. I'll be putting that up on the web. A couple questions about baptism. Do you need to be submerged when being baptized? Uh, same other question from somebody else. Basically, why immersion and not sprinkling? Well, again, uh, goes back to the language. Uh, in the Greek language, the word baptizo means to immerse. In fact, I always tell somebody, if you doubt what we're saying, go to the nearest Greek Orthodox church here in the valley and go into that Greek Orthodox church. They know what the Greek means. And what do they do when they baptize? They immerse because they know that the word baptize means to immerse. And if you study the baptism of Jesus in the, in the uh, Bible... He was taken down into the water and brought back up. All right. The reason being, because remember, baptism is a picture of our dying with Christ, in a sense, by identifying ourselves with Christ and then being raised to new life in Christ. That's why when Pastor Tom here at Cornerstone will baptize folks, he says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He lays them down in the water as if they have died with Christ, identified in his death, but then raised back up to this newness of life. That's why, like the Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creation. That's what baptism pictures. That's why immersion. Does baptism save you? No. Baptism is what I call a step of obedience in the Christian life. But it is not... For salvation, let me just give you one example, and I could give you many. Well, I'll say two things. One, if baptism was necessary for salvation, then every time the gospel was given in the Bible, baptism would be included in that, and it's not. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul shares the gospel, the good news, baptism is not a part of that passage. But secondly, here's an example. Jesus is hanging on the cross. One of those crucified with him, is hanging next to him. He puts his faith in Jesus. What's Jesus' response? Today you will be with me in paradise. Did he have a chance to be baptized? No, he didn't. So baptism is not necessary for salvation. However, it is an important step in 
your Christian life. And I would encourage you, if you've never been baptized, to consider being baptized. I think it's important that we are willing to be publicly identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's very, very meaningful. If you've never been to a baptism service here at Cornerstone, just even go sometime as a spectator. I don't think you'll leave there with a dry eye. Uh, it's just tremendously moving experience. Next question. Seems like a lot of questions on baptism. Why do you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yet in Acts 2.38, it says, in Jesus' name. Uh, I don't see a contradiction there. I mean, literally, in Matthew 28, the passage we get from the baptismal formula, if you will, Jesus says, I want you to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Peter says to be baptized in Jesus' name, he's just simply not incorporating God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in that. But I don't see that as a contradiction. And here's what I'll say about this. And I think this is good to answer this this way in a group like this when we talk about how to interpret the Bible and all this. The Bible is 100% accurate. All right? But that doesn't mean the Bible is precise. Because God understands that all we're really looking for and all we expect out of each other is accuracy. We don't expect precision because we don't act that way and we don't talk that way. Let me give you an example. It is accurate for me to say, if this was true, and it's not because I don't know how many miles away I live from here. But it would be accurate for me to say, I live eight miles away from the church. And if I lived... 7.965 miles away, you wouldn't go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not precise. No, I'm accurate, but I'm not precise. The Bible is 100% accurate. And where people begin to nitpick is when, well, the Bible didn't do the 7.965 miles, it only did the 8 miles. Yeah, but you and I don't do the 7.965 miles. God understood that, how we're going to communicate with each other. And as long as we are accurate, that's the important thing. So I see this as just a count that he's accurate. You do baptize people in Jesus' name. And just because he didn't include God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, to me, is not a contradiction. All right. Does this church believe in healing? And why doesn't the church teach more about healing? Yes, let me just say, the church here believes in healing, all right? I believe, and I believe, that God can heal anybody of anything at any time, all right? But here's something I think we need to wrap our minds around a little bit more of. Most of the time when people talk about healing, they're only talking about one aspect, physical. And see, for me, I think the Bible teaches that physical is actually the low part of the totem pole with God. That the spiritual healing that God wants to do in people's lives and the emotional healing that God wants to do in people's lives is even more important than the physical healing. All we seem to focus on is the physical healing. I remember as a pastor for many, many years, we would have our what we call a Wednesday night midweek Bible study. And part of that would be our prayer time. And we'd all have a prayer list. And every week on that prayer list, out of 100 requests, 99 of them were about physical needs and one was about a spiritual or emotional need. And I think we just, we are so physically focused on everything all the time, that we forget that to God, the physical really isn't as important as the spiritual or as the emotional. God is doing spiritual healing, emotional healing, and physical healing. 
uh, all the time in many, many people's lives. And to me, the spiritual and emotional trump that because my Bible tells me that God wants me to be holy even more than He wants me to be healthy. Because there may be times in my life where God uses suffering or sickness to glorify Him or to build something into my life. And that's why I always use the passage in 2 Corinthians 12 about the Apostle Paul, who had this thorn in his flesh. And he went to God and said, God, can you take this thorn in the flesh away? And what did God tell him? No. My grace is what? Sufficient. You're going to keep that thorn in your flesh. See, so if, if God didn't think that, that sometimes by us having something in our life that can keep us humble, keep us close to God, keep us depending on Him, is more important than actually being healed, so I think we've got to be careful there. We've got to get a total biblical perspective on things. Uh, so I, I believe the church here believes in healing, and I don't want to speak for Pastor Lynn, although I think I know him well enough to know, yeah, I think we believe in healing here and all that. Why does the church not teach more about it? Again, I, you'd have to ask him that, but I think it's just a matter of they've got 52 Sundays in a year, and they're trying to be very strategic about the things that they talk about on Sunday. Uh, could it be something that we talk more about in a small church or something like that sometime? Yes, and I will consider doing maybe a series on that sometime. All right, so you have your wish. Next question. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And if so, do you speak in tongues? All right, let me ask, answer that question. Yes, I am filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, do I speak in tongues? No, I have never spoke in tongues. All right? And I do not equate the filling of the Spirit with speaking in tongues. There is so much more I could say about that, but I won't. Okay? Because I don't want to take the whole night to talk about tongues. It seems like that's just one of those subjects that we can just, people just get off on and just not very edifying to me. All right? So I'll just tell you this. I believe I am filled with the Spirit been baptized with the Spirit, although you may have a different interpretation of that than I do. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, that because you've been baptized in the Spirit and been filled with the Spirit, that tongue speaking has to be part of that equation. That's, if you want to talk more about that with me, make an appointment. <clears throat> what are the steps to being saved? Ask Christ into your life, repent, ask for forgiveness, be baptized. Great question. Basically, I think what they're just trying to clarify here is, you know, again, is, is there a step process? My answer to that quickly is no. It's simply trusting Jesus alone. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, is what the Bible says. But I will say this. If you understand salvation from the way it is taught in Scripture... And if you understand what true belief in Jesus Christ is, it already involves repentance. Because repentance involves, literally means, a change of mind. Alright? So, it is impossible for me to place my faith in Christ as my Savior and not have changed my mind about who He is and what He did. I had to change my mind. I had to come to a point in my life where I recognized that nothing else can save me, that I'm not looking to 
myself to save me or anything else to save me. I had to come to that point where I changed my mind and through the Word of God realized it was only through trusting in Christ that I could be saved and come into a right relationship with Christ. So in a sense, all of that sort of is together. When you understand the Word of God about this subject, and then you turn from everything else in the world that you think may have saved you, and you recognize that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, all of that is really wrapped up in that at the same time. And the moment you do that, and God sees your heart, that you are just sincere and genuine in trusting in Him alone, your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Then baptism would come along that after you become a Christian, that baptism should be a step of obedience that you take after you came to know Christ. By the way, I'm just going to answer a couple more, and then if you have a question about the questions, we'll try to get to that a little bit. But I've got a lot of questions to get to. How, do, oh, how does a person know if they are saved? Romans 8.16. The Bible says, The Spirit of God witnesses with your spirit that you are a son or daughter, child of God. The Spirit of God. I always tell people, if God is inside of you, you're going to know it. The God of the universe is not going to be able to live inside of you and you not know it. You're going to know it if the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And the Spirit of God, Romans 8.16, will witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Would you please explain the message for us in Genesis 4 concerning Cain and Abel? I had to sort of figure out where I thought this this person was coming from, so I hope I get your question right. If not, come up and slap me after the class is over. <laughs> the primary thing I think that why we have that story of Cain and Abel is, first of all, Genesis 4-9, am I my brother's keeper? And God was basically saying, yeah, you are. You are your brother's keeper. In other words, what you do affects your brothers and sisters. You and I don't live in, in, in a vacuum. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it talks about how Jealousy and envy is what really gripped Cain to ultimately kill his own brother. And it's just a reminder to us, I think, that story about how, how sin starts out maybe as something like jealousy and envy. And if we don't take care of that jealousy and envy or anything like that, how it continues to build. And that's why the Bible says, you know, no sin is a small sin. Because if that little sin gets into your life and sort of gets a grip on your life then it can build and build and build into something monstrous to where then it's just so much bigger than you that you and I just get bowled over by it and it controls us rather than us being in control of it. So I hope that was what you were going for. Here's the question I wanted to get to tonight. I get this question everywhere. How do I answer the Calvinist view of predestination? Yay! All right, let me give you the Jeff Royce version, all right? Real quick, this is going to be simple, painless, I promise. First of all, very, I do not believe that the Bible teaches anywhere that my God chose some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. I'm sorry, I don't buy that. The Bible clearly teaches God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible teaches for God so loved the world, that means everybody. Uh, so that verse would contradict to me very clearly that doctrine. Uh, then they say, well, okay... But doesn't the Bible teach election, predestination? And I say yes, but it always teaches it in the context, and that's why we have to study the Bible in the context 
of the purposes of salvation, not the people who are saved and who are not saved. For instance, let me give you an example. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about God predestined us. But in verse 29, it says He predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, those who are accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior will become like Jesus Christ one day. That was the predestination. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says we are elect, but if you go on and read it in the context, it says we're elect to be obedient. In other words, the purpose of salvation is hopefully that we will be obedient Christians, not disobedient Christians. So it's always in the context of the purpose of it. One other thing I'll say, because again, we could spend all night talking about this. I always compare this whole deal with the angels. Sometime, a long time ago, we don't know exactly when, because the Bible's not specific, Lucifer rose up in rebellion against God and said, I don't want to be here anymore, God. I don't want to serve you. And the Bible says that at that point, about a third of the angelic realm rose up in rebellion with Lucifer, went out of heaven and said, God, we don't want to follow you anymore. We don't want to serve you anymore. Now, at that point, somewhere in the past, God allowed the angels a choice. But once they made that choice, they were locked into that choice for all of eternity. So like today, Michael can't go up there in heaven and go, God, I I think I'd like to be with Satan now. No, that can't happen. And a demon in hell or wherever they are can't go, "Uh, God, uh, I think I made a mistake by following this guy. Can I come back now? No, it can't happen. God gave them a choice, but once they made that choice, they were locked into that choice for all of eternity. Same thing with humans. Once we make a choice, ultimately, now ultimately, whether we are going to choose Christ or reject Christ, we are locked into that choice for all of eternity. And how I illustrate it, although I'm not going to draw it on our new walls here in the building, (laughs) is I use two cruise ships. Cruise ship here headed that way, and we'll say that's going to heaven. Cruise ship down here, headed towards hell. Ultimately, every human being makes a choice and has a choice of what cruise ship they get on. Whether they're going to choose Christ and ultimately go to heaven, or whether they're ultimately going to choose to reject Christ and go to hell. Now, once they make that choice, though, ultimately, they have no choice. They have no choice. But, here's the other cool thing. On this big cruise ship, going to heaven... Okay, I choose to get on that ship because I choose Jesus Christ as my Savior. But even on that ship, and I've never been on a cruise, but people told me, there's a lot you can do on that cruise ship. (laughs) A lot to eat, they tell me, on the cruise ship. So all I'm saying is, then even after I choose Christ, and I know I'm going to heaven one day, and ultimately that's going to be my destination, God still gives me a lot of freedom, even within my Christian life, to make good choices and bad choices on that ship, if you will. But that ship is ultimately going to dock at heaven's port. That's why the Bible teaches in Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What he began in you, he will finish in you. That's that part. That's that part. All right. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. All right. Um. Here's a very good question dealing with culture and ethics. Would a DNR, do not resuscitate, be considered suicide? My quick answer to that is absolutely not. These situations are never easy. And any of us, I've had to deal with this myself and my family. Uh, 
I believe the Bible clearly teaches in Ecclesiastes 8.8 that God has the final say over death. And should God desire to keep a person alive, he is perfectly capable of doing so even without a machine. Alright, now, I'm not saying that it's wrong if you choose to keep a family member or somebody on that machine. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm also saying that I do not in any way think that if you decide to take someone off of that machine or that help, that they are somehow you are, you know, murdering them or they're committing suicide in any way. I just encourage you to pray for wisdom. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, when we get into situations like that, to ask God for wisdom, and the Bible promises us He will give us wisdom in those times. But again, Ecclesiastes 8.8 says, God has the final say over death. Listen, if it's not your time, there ain't nothing that can happen to you that's going to take your life. And if it is your time, there's no machine that man has made that will keep you here. If it's your time to go, it's your time to go. God is sovereign over life and over death. Alright, let me go on to a couple other ones here. Although I did say I was going to stop. Okay. Where do Christians go after they die in this time? I believe they go right to heaven. Again, going back to the thief on the cross, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now where some people get, they think that the different words that are used in the Bible for heaven, like paradise, Abraham's bosom, and all of that, are different places. I do not believe that. I believe it's all the same place. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So as soon as I close my eyes in death, I go to heaven. But, they go on. The Bible talks about them being raised up after Christ comes again and the judgment of those who've been saved. So where are they now and, and all of that? I'll just say this. I believe that the body goes into the ground. Alright? But I believe that God gives our loved ones and friends who've already went to heaven an intermediate body to live in until this body is resurrected and glorified, which is fitted for eternity. Now, I base that on a couple of things. One, I'll just give you tonight, is the passage about the transfiguration of Christ. When Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Peter, James, and John saw two Old Testament characters. Do you remember who they were? Moses. Moses and Elijah. And when they saw Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah had a, a body. Moses and Elijah haven't experienced the resurrection yet. They're Old Testament saints. But they had a body. Okay? And I think there's other passages that teach that as well. So I believe that you go to heaven, you get an intermediate body, you are up there enjoying the glories of heaven and all of that, but when Jesus Christ comes back in the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17, the dead in Christ will rise first, and that, resurrected, that body will be resurrected and reunited and fit for eternity so that we can live forever. Good question. How do I answer the fact that there are no mention of dinosaurs in the Bible? Uh, I think there are, and I'll tell you, I think in the book of Job, there's two animals mentioned in the book of Job called Leviathan and Behemoth. I think Leviathan and Behemoth, if you read the book of Job account, I think it's Job 40 or something like that, to me, it can't be anything but a dinosaur. I do believe that men and dinosaurs did coexist. In fact, that whole creation evolution thing, let me just put out another commercial. In, in August, at the end of August into September, I'm going to be doing a small church study on Sunday morning, either at 8.30 or 11.30, on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, looking at how it all began. Uh, I truly believe 
that if a Christian can get a handle on Genesis 1 through 11, that Genesis 12 through Revelation 22 will make total sense. Because the foundation of everything that's taught after Genesis 11 is given to us in Genesis 1-11. So if you can get a handle on the first 11 chapters, you've got to realize that nothing new is taught to us after Genesis 11. Everything is laid as a foundation for the rest of the Bible in those 11 chapters. They are the most important chapters in all the Bible. And a lot of times we neglect them. We neglect them. So that's coming up. And uh, if you'd like information on that, we'll be talking about that. In fact, here's another question about Genesis. In Genesis, there's a part that talks about angels that got together with women. They're all spring, being these giants. Uh, they, yeah, uh, they're called the Nephilim. Uh, let me just say, what I think happened there was, I think these demons, okay, got this plan that they were going to try to infiltrate the, the human race. And the reason why they wanted to do that is because, again, back in the book of Genesis, God promised after Adam and Eve sinned, that the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, was going to come through the seed of a woman. So the demons are pretty smart. Hmm, come through the seed of a woman. So if we can taint the human race, if we can, if we can throw off, in a sense, human, humanity, then it's going to taint the Messiah being able to come and save the world and offer Himself. So the demons and Satan hatched this plan back in the book of Genesis to try to in a sense, cause God to not be able to fulfill that promise and that plan back in the book of Genesis. It's one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why God gave the worldwide flood. Because those creations of the demonic world needed to be destroyed. And that's just one of the reasons, but that's a fascinating story and one that if you come to that class, we'll talk about it. Here's a good question. There are so many races in the world, black, Asian, Hispanic. How would a Christian explain how all offspring came from two people? That's a good question. <laughs> Let me answer that. Adam and Eve, I believe, and again, I, God can do anything. Okay? So I believe that when God created Adam and Eve, that he created them to possess the entire genetic code within themselves. And as they began to have offspring... It all, it all of a sudden caused, in a sense, a mix of the genetic code even back then. And then when Noah and his family came along, I personally believe that Noah's family were all of mixed race and possessed the genetic code to produce children of all different races as they moved out off of the ark once the flood was there. In fact, I don't think any one of Noah's family looked exactly like the other one did. And I think within them, they had that genetic code. And we all know this is true, too. You know of couples who had children who, you know, the couple was maybe dark-haired, and then all of a sudden they get a red-haired child, and you go, where did the red hair come from? You know, because we all realize that we have that genetic code within us that not always do our children or grandchildren or the family members always have to look alike because there can always be that, whoa, where did you come from type of thing. And it's part of the genetic code. All right. And I'm not a genetic scientist, but God is the ultimate geneticist, if you will. And that's my explanation for that. The lineage of Islam uh, and, and Judaism and all of that. Where does that come from? Uh, let me quickly try to explain that. Back in the book of Genesis. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, 
Abraham and Sarah had a son by themselves, supernaturally, called Isaac. He is the father, if you will, or whatever, of the Jewish race. Well, before that, they tried to do the shortcut with Hagar, and the offspring of Hagar was Ishmael, and Ishmael then is sort of the head of what I call all the Middle Eastern non-Jewish people. Does that make sense? Because I don't want to say Muslim, I don't want to say Arab, because not all Muslims are Arabs, not all Arabs are Muslim, and it still doesn't cover everything in the Middle East. So, Isaac's descendants are the Jews, Ishmael's descendants are all Middle Eastern non-Jewish people. Now, when you go on in the book of Genesis, then Isaac, the son of Abraham, and his wife, Rebekah, had two children. Jacob and Esau. Jacob, again, is just a further descendant down of the Jewish race. But Esau is sort of the father of what's called in the Bible the Edomites. E-D-O-M-I-T-E-S. All right? The Edomites. Not representative of all the non-Jewish people like uh, Ishmael is, but one Part of that, the Edomites. And if you'd like to study the Edomites, get a good Bible dictionary. They've got great stuff. Why is the Bible not in chronological order? Because the Bible is put together by type of literature, not chronologically. Now, I will say, that can make the Bible a little bit more difficult to manage at times. But in some ways, it makes it easier because, like in the Old Testament, they put all the history together. They put all the poetry together. They put all the prophecy together. And then within those types, pretty much, it is in chronological order. So when you get over to the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah uh, is before Jeremiah in chronological order. So it's not in chronological order, but it's by type. Because they want us to, whoa, understand that there are certain sections of the Bible that deal with those things, like the Gospels are all together and then the Epistles. Good question. But within those types, they are generally chronological. I would also encourage you, if you like chronology and that would help you to study the Bible in chronology or especially the life of Jesus, because in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're trying, what, what came first? Get a chronological Bible. They're out there. You can get it on christianbooks.com or amazon.com for like 13 bucks. It's a well worth investment for 13 bucks to get a chronological Bible. In fact, they have an NIV chronological Bible out. So, go for it. It's great. Uh, i got to wrap it up here in just a few minutes. Is there one question I just have to like get to? I guess not. Uh, I'll just go to the next one. Uh, this one is about this whole thing with women and teaching and all of that. Ooh, boy. <laughs> I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to say this. Um, and I'll use Beth Moore as an example because I think she's a great example. Uh, she does it the right way. Uh, she teaches. She predominantly teaches other women. And she teaches under the authority of her husband and her local church. And that's all the Bible is saying. Uh, you know, that, that we need to be careful there. It doesn't mean that women can't teach. I mean, if you read the Bible, Aquila... And Priscilla, this couple, were teachers. And I believe that there are great women teachers out there. The only thing that I would say is, the Bible says that those women need to be under the authority 
of a church. There has to be some kind of accountability out there. If there is no accountability out there, then women and men can go off and just do their own thing and not have anybody to hold their feet to the fire. Alright? So... Uh, in the prophecies in the Old Testament regarding whom the Messiah will be, is there a verse stating that the Messiah would not marry? I have a friend who asked this question because her husband believes humans wrote the Bible leaving the part out that Jesus married. In other words, we conveniently left out the parts we didn't want. Um, I'll answer this question this way. No, there is no verse in the Bible that talks about the Messiah not marrying. However, I would answer them this way. If Jesus was married, where is the evidence? Not in the Bible, but especially in all the extra-biblical literature that talked about Jesus. So you've got to understand, this is where a lot of these people, they talk about this, they really don't know what they're talking about. There were hundreds of Jewish historians, Roman historians, Greek historians, who wrote about Jesus, who were not Christians. Do you not think that if Jesus was married, and this was common knowledge, and that just the church was trying to hide this fact or something, that all of these hundreds of historians would have known, somebody would have known, and they would have written it down? You can't find any evidence at all in history that Jesus was married, first of all. And you can't even find any evidence of that in any extra-biblical literature. And you're talking about people like Tacitus, the Roman historian, who wrote about Jesus almost every day. You're talking about Josephus, a Jewish historian. Again, these are all non-Christian people who wrote about Jesus every day. The good, the bad. They were like reporters like we have today, you know. Hey, we're here with Jesus. What's going on? You know, that type of thing. And obviously, they didn't, they didn't buy into Jesus, so they weren't going to always write things that were, you know, uh, good. And, and if, again, if these people were serious, they would check it out in history. You can't find any extra biblical literature about that kind of stuff. In fact, that's one of the great evidences, actually, for all the validity of the New Testament. Because if you study the extra-biblical literature, because where they, they always attack the Bible. They always say, well, you Christians, you got the Bible. How can you believe the Bible? But if you go to all this extra-biblical literature and you compare what that said with what the Bible says, guess what? It matches because it was true. It was true. Just like it came out a couple weeks ago. Herod the Great, they found his tomb over there. Gee whiz, you know, guess what? Gee, and not that God or the Bible has to be confirmed, because we know it's true without all the confirmation, but if you would take the time to check it out, you would find it true. Listen, for years, for years, there were scoffers and skeptics saying, the Bible's not true. There's no city up there called Nazareth where this Jesus came from. Because see, Nazareth was such a small town that it wasn't even on the map. And there was no archaeological evidence for years and years and years. I call myself the theological pit bull sometimes. All right. Um, It's almost eight. Guys, I will put the rest of these answers to these questions on the website. And I have just... You guys have worked me out tonight. I'm going to sleep good tonight. Hey, I hope you folks have enjoyed the mind this semester as much as I have. I just thank you. Thank you. Um, You all are terrific. You are a gift to me and to this church. And let me just once again say before we close tonight, if there's anything I can ever do uh, to help you 
encourage you in your walk with God and getting into the Word and studying it and growing, that's what I'm here for. I mean, that's my passion. I mean, I, this book is, you know, it's it for me. Um, so, if there's anything I can do in relationship to that book, uh, I, I would love, love to do it. Uh, so, anyway, uh, please, let me know. And uh, don't be a stranger this summer. Uh, like there, I welcome in any of the classes that I teach. And certainly, as I see you guys around the church campus, uh, let's get together and talk and whatever. And I look forward to seeing you August the 21st, if not before. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you so very much for just the privilege I've had of uh, teaching this semester these wonderful, wonderful folks. And Lord, I just pray you would just bless them uh, as only you can bless them. Lord, may they just sense your filling in their life like never before. Um, Just let them know how much you love them and how much I love them and how much, Lord, they have encouraged me uh, in my life. And Lord... uh, Probably only when we get to heaven will they truly understand just how much they mean to me. Uh, God, thank you again for this time together. And Lord, I just hope that we never take the time that we have together and the time in your word for granted. It is truly a gift from you. And Lord, I know these folks make an extra effort every week to be here on Tuesday night. But I pray that they might feel encouraged and blessed for the effort that they put into being here tonight. Take us all home safely, Father. We pray tonight. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, thank you. You're great. You're great.